You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. This is episode 74, and I am your host, Troy Goodfellow. And with me today are Julian Murdoch. Hello, hello. And Rob Zachney. Hi, everybody. Julian, we missed you last week. You, you, no, you didn't. We Not were really. telling our origin stories. Oh, nice segue. Nice segue. Very nice. That's uh, a great segue because this week we're doing uh, one of our classic game analysis episodes. And this time we chose something that is not a strategy game, uh, but something that I think informs both the ideas of creating new worlds, and it's a setting that I'd like to see more of in strategy games, and that is the Freedom Force series from Rational Games, two of my very favorite uh, action RPGs ever made. So we reached out and grabbed... Ken Levine from Rational Games to join us uh, on the podcast to talk about uh, Freedom Force and game design and whether there is any lessons in it uh, for strategy games. So, Ken, thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Troy. I understand you're a regular listener. I am. So you I, know what you're in for. I, I know what I'm in for. I, um, I know that... Um... I've, I'm, you know, I'm mourning the absence of Chick. By the way, it's been a, it's been a long time. I heard that slut on another podcast over the weekend. Oh, uh, <laughs> want you to know that that you know, I, I, I don't know if you know what he's doing, but I do. <laughs> he's off with those those Game Shark guys. Well, yeah. Have you, have you seen Bill Abner in a dress? Uh, um, I presume Chick has. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, come back. Uh, we miss you, and we need. <sighs> Well, let me uh, let me start with the the Tom Chick comment. What the hell do you mean that Freedom Force isn't a strategy game? <laughs> is it a strategy game, Julian? I think it's a strategy game. I mean, it's it's certainly a real time tactics game. We we sat here and talked about I don't know Jean Dark and and all sorts of games in that sort of you know the Final Fantasy tactics type genre. I mean, Freedom Force is 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 kind of a a plausible real time version of a lot of those games, which we spent tons of time talking about, isn't it? I'd say it belongs to like sort of the tactical RPG category that we've already argued about, and you know, close enough for our purposes. Okay. I don't think it's an action RPG. I'll tell you that, good fellow. Okay. Well, it's an action. It's how an action game and an RPG at the same time. Why? Why is it an action game? I, I can't push a button and swing a sword. To me, that means it's an action game. Because it's a comic book. Comic books have action in them. I don't know. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> crossing a line here that's, that's... <laughs> all right so ken why don't you tell us a bit about the creation of freedom force um why you first why you made it when you made it and some of your inspirations and the big design decisions when you decided to make freedom force what type of game were you making well we originally um you know it's right after system shock 2 um we, we i you know i've always been a giant comic book nerd and um, i grew up reading comics i you know i wanted to be a a comic book writer or a comic book artist, it just, you know, never happened. And um, it, it occurred to me that there was, you know, for some reason, nobody really at that point had made a, you know, a good, uh, a game that I thought really represented what was cool about comic books, which was, you know, coming up with characters and, and cool stories and cool superpowers and just be able, and feeling powerful. I think that's what was really missing from those games is feeling really powerful, that power fantasy. And um, originally, actually, the game design we had was much more, uh, it was a turn-based game. That was the original idea. It was called, game called, the game was called Justice Squad. And it was a turn-based game, and that's how we pitched it. And I think we sort of realized early on 
that this is when turn-based, the point in time when you really started, really couldn't be making big, expensive turn-based, or, you know, relatively expensive turn-based games anymore. Um, and so we sort of pushed away from that. And I played Baldur's Gate and John Che, my, uh, my business partner, and uh, the guy who led the project, had played some Baldur's Gate and really enjoyed it. And really liked how they sort of, even though it was an RPG, we, it was a really a, 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 a tactical game. How those combats played out. I would play those games by, you know, starting and pausing and thinking, oh, what spell am I going to cast? And, you know, should I take a potion? Uh, Julian, you say? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm oh. just listening. I'm just, you oh. know, I'm basking I, in the glory of your deep <laughs> radio voice. That's, 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 wow. I'm blushing. Um, the, um, <laughs> The and and so, and so you know we just love that kind of game and and we just saw a real opportunity that nobody had done a superhero game and I remember people kept saying to us when we were pitching it like oh aren't you afraid of the superhero curse like we kept getting that question I was like what the fuck are you talking about oh can we curse in this podcast well I just yeah, did. sure so yep. we are, I guess we are cursing this you podcast. can now yeah. um everybody kept asking me like what are, you know, what about the superhero curse what about and like I couldn't believe people were seriously asking me that question but I was I guess I was grateful because it meant. For some reason, people weren't making these games, and we got to get there sort of, you know, first with the kind of ga- hero game I wanted to make, which wasn't sort of a side-scrolling beat-em-up, but something more, um, something a little more in-depth than that. Now, the decision to go from turn-based to, to real-time, do, do you ever look back on that decision? Do you, is there a freedom, ver- freedom force in your head that's turn-based that, you know, you wish you'd been able to make? How do you think it, how do you think it would have changed the game? Well, the original inspiration was XCOM, you know, having this, like, you know, a, a managing a team and which we still had some of, you know, a very small amount of in terms of team management, more about character management. And, um, you know, and obviously the environmental destruction is something we really liked in XCOM and we brought over to Freedom Force. Um, but I guess we felt at the end of the day, just the market, you know, was it wasn't really there. And I'm not really sure looking back on it if we would have gotten that feeling, you know, especially that kind of way Freedom Force ended up being, you know, so the, you know, the Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, Silver Age of Comics feel would have really came across in, um, in, um, in, in, in turn-based. So I think it was probably the right move at the end of the day. I'm sure there'd be, you know, some people who would disagree, but I think it was probably the right move to do. Um, and we never, we kind of, we didn't get that far in the design. I don't think, I mean, I could be misremembering without before we, we became a real-time game. So there wasn't a huge amount of work done on, on the turn-based stuff. I mean, it's interesting as a real-time game because uh, it, it, of all the real-time games I've ever played, real-time strategy-ish games, whatever the hell we're going to decide to call this thing, um, it's like the least real-time of those games I've played because I can't play this game for more than about 20 seconds without hitting the pause button uh, because it, it, you really do have to micromanage. I mean, this is a game where individual character control is not optional. I mean, if you just sort of click on the ground and expect your characters to go do intelligent things, it ain't going to happen, right? Any more than, like, if you were playing a board game and you just shoved your units and expect them to roll the dice for you. Well, this is what, you know, we were just talking before the podcast started about about Age of Empires, and it it always struck me as a, a missed opportunity for games that there weren't more games made to run in real time but designed to be have a lot of pauses and inputs because to me that always struck me you know and Baldur, you know Baldur's Gate was our inspiration for that that always struck me as sort of like a really nice middle ground because you have that the kind of thinking that you want out of turn based you know the kind of the, the ability to pause and think and really go go into a detailed list of powers and detailed list of options but without sort of the the artifice that sometimes come out of out of out of turn based and look I think that artifice is really good if you're making a game that 
sort of um, leverages that artifice because you know a lot of a lot of you know squad leader or something works because it has those turns and because it has those right. that abstraction layer to it. That's just part of the game. You know, there is no Settlers of Catan that's real time. It just doesn't make sense. Um, unless there is one that I'm missing. Um, the um, and and I always loved these games. Uh, you know, I play and I play whenever I can play a game like that. You know, like I love some of my favorite games, whether it's um, Baldur's Gate or whether it's um, um, soldiers um, here. Well, soldier, what's that damn game? Heroes of World War Two. Yeah, Heroes of World War Two, which I play that way, or um, or or Rise of Nations. I play that way. I love, love, love that kind of game because to me, it's the perfect meeting of the minds. And it always struck me as odd when people t- would talk about Freedom Force that like that it would get it would run away from them and you know they and they would run too fast for them. And I always, I always assumed because that's the way I play them that people would play it that way by constantly pausing the way Julian's saying he was going right. to play it. And it's funny as, you know, as a game developer, it's one of those assumptions you make that people are like you. Um, and it never even occurred to me that it would, that people would play it without pausing all the time. Uh, and I think people did because that's when they hear real time. That's just what the assumption they made is. But I never, I played it constantly pausing. Yeah, I'm one of the people actually tried to uh, Iron Man and not pause. I, you know, when I first played it, I was like, that felt a little bit cheap to be, you know, slamming the pause button every, you know, half second really. And did did, did you start with uh, Did you start with Freedom Force or Freedom Force Third Right? Because you were a total Freedom Force virgin until about a week ago, right? Um, I had made one attempt to play it earlier, but I got sidetracked, um, so I started over. And yeah, I was trying to basically go through it real time, and then and then you basically told me what was up to to think of it as a turn-based war game where you set your own turns, and that really kind of changed how I played it and really got me into it a lot more. Do you want to explain that how it, you made that connection? As a turn-based war game, how do you see it carrying over? Because a lot of our listeners probably missed Freedom Force as well, so you might want to. Uh, is that for me or Julian? Either of you. I'll jump so you're in. the one who did it. Go ahead. So, I mean, the way I had approached, I mean, I think a lot, I probably did some of the the frustration uh, beating of my head against this game when it first came out. Um, and when this game came out, uh, it was to me, it was my ultimate laptop game, uh, precisely because it didn't require me to be have like super precise mouse controls and things like that. And actually ran on the laptop I had at the time. And I tried to sort of Iron Man, maybe the first hour of the game maybe first two hours of the game, sort of trying to keep up without really realizing that I could pause. Uh, and then I, I I hit one of the Freedom Force fan sites, which incidentally I found out are still like going strong, which is wow. cra- crazy. Can you some, give me a some, link? Make sure I have links to those. Yeah, somebody actually released a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles mod last month. I mean, so people are still grinding this stuff oh, wow. out. Um, but uh, but it was it was only when I went there and sort of somebody from the community said, by the way, you know, you should be hitting the pause button like pretty much after you see the resolution of every one of your turns. And so the idea that it, it is a turn based game where you're sort of choosing when the turn ends um, really sort of came from from the community. But when you think about it that way, it really does play like that, because obviously you're not going to pause it running across the map. Right. And you're not going to pause it if you, you know, just got your guys sort of using auto attacks to take down a bunch of minions that doesn't matter. But then when you get to, say, a boss or you get to a tricky tactical situation where you've got some terrain in the way and you want to pick up a car or you want to grab a lamppost to hit somebody over the head, um, then it really does become a matter of so pick an action for everybody, wait till, you know, a critical action resolves, even if not all of your actions have resolved and sort of take that as your turn end and then react. I mean, so that's, 
I, to me, it does feel like a very natural way of playing, but I will say initially it was not. Um, perhaps because I sort of never made the Baldur's Gate connection. I mean, I played the game, but but I approached Freedom Force with such a very different mind space at the time that I was like, oh, it's a real-time strategy game, as opposed to, oh, I'm playing Baldur's Gate, but with superheroes. So, Julian, why? Well, it's interesting to me, because, as I said, having assumed people would make that connection when we were developing the game, why do you think, and obviously it's our fault as the developers, that people didn't make that connection or we weren't clear they should make that connection. Why, why do you think it never it didn't occur to you to to do that? Like like what was missing that that would have helped you make that leap? Well, I mean, when you fire up Third Reich, I think like the fourth or fifth ter- tooltip tells you to hit the pause button all the time. So that would help. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you mean we should, if you want to tell people, we should tell people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there. But this, this it's sort of a classic problem with with strategy games in general, which is strategy games tend to have fairly complex systems. Um, and Freedom Force is no different. I mean, when you put in all the different layers of, you know, powers, defenses, weaknesses and stuff, I mean, it's kind of like playing Pokemon with 35 decks. You've got all these different strengths and weaknesses playing off each other, um, which make a huge difference in how things resolve. Um, and if you don't actually st- take a step back and kind of stop playing the game to try to understand the systems at some point, uh, a lot of strategy games lead you astray. I mean, you try to jump into a game of Dominions and not without reading the manual, um, forget it. You, you just, yep. You're just doomed. Right. And and I think that this game comes from a time when people maybe spent more time reading the manuals than they do now. Uh, and so consequently, you sort of expected people to discover the systems because they're there and they're documented. So of course people are going to discover the systems. I For me, I think I'd put it down actually to um, really just the setting and the tone. Um, you know, if this if if there'd been soldiers or something wandering around this game, um, I think I might have you know made the wargaming leap a little earlier, but sort of the the tongue in cheek, um, you know, set up of Silver Age comics, plus the fact that you've got superheroes and bright costumes running around, um, you know, this bright little world, it just never occurred to me that this is something that you know. It never occurred to me that I was going to have to like slow down, get really tactical, and start really thinking about these. It just seemed like something where, um, really, I mean, my first reaction was more like uh, Diablo with superheroes. Right. Um, Action RPG. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I made the same mistaken assumption that Troy did. Well, but but part of that, I mean, I, I think of the games this most feels like, and in some ways, uh, the, the game I've most recently played, which feels like this, is actually Frozen Synapse, which has sort of a similar you're choosing where the breakpoints are feel to it, um, because you can just sort of click across the map and your guy runs there, or you can micromanage the crap out of him and say, move a foot and a half, turn left three degrees. I mean, it's, it takes this almost to an absurd level. Um, I still yep. love that game, but it, but it takes this idea of it can be as micromanaging and as paused and non-real time as you want it to be uh, to, to a ridiculous extreme. And so I think we're a little more used to it now. One thing that I noticed um, Third Reich did, because uh, that's the one I played most recently this week, that I don't think was in the original one, was there's a little more cueing from the characters when they're standing around, right? So if, if yeah. one of your characters sort of runs out of actions or runs out of energy, so they stop doing the action they were doing before, they'll actually sort of say, hello, over here, by the way, you forgot about me, you know, job done, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting you bring up um, Frozen Synapse because Frozen Synapse is very similar to two games I love, which is one is Combat Mission, you know, that sort of that, that we go notion. And it really is very similar. Do you remember RoboSport? 
Mm-hmm. Like a hundred years ago. Do you guys play I that? I do not. I do not remember RoboSport. Why don't you tell it, us about RoboSport? It's from Maxis, actually. It was right after SimCity. The original SimCity came out, and Maxis released a game called RoboSport, which was. You remember those old games, like, and they go way back to the Apple II, where you program robots, and they. Yeah, and it's like it's yeah. similar to Robo Rally on the surface, right? Where you're making these sort of predetermined positions with your team of robots. Yeah, and unlike the games that came out before, it was actually quite simple. Like, it was very few commands, and it was graphically, well, for the time, graphically rich and exciting. And it had that great feeling, the same as Frozen Snaps, where you're watching the turn unfold, and you realize you sort of made a mistake. And, you know, but there's nothing you can do about it, because it's that, you know, it's the, it's the play. It's just you're just playing a movie of the turn. And, um, you know, that may have been another interesting option for how to do Freedom Force, because we probably would have allowed us to do... The heroes to do a lot of cool things, you know, quote, autonomously, um, semi-autonomously, which would have been really cool to watch them do. Um, right. Because, you know, you very much, very much, I think one of the complaints about Freedom Force, and I think it's a reasonable complaint, is the amount of micromanagement. And part of the amount of micromanagement is because there's no reason not to expect, you know, you can manage every second. So, you know, you kind of feel obligated to manage every, every well, second. Well, and, and, you know, I, I mean, again, not to get hypercritical about it. Um, there, you know, if you look at some modern strategy games, there's an awful lot of AI that get bolted into characters that you quote unquote control. Um, and in Freedom Force, that's pretty limited. I mean, yeah. it, it, I think there's the first game certainly got criticized for just things like having some pathing issues and, you know, things that a lot of games got accused of back in that day. Uh, I think all perfectly validly you know you weren't having world-class ai running every single one of your characters when you weren't paying attention to it um yep. you know a lot of that got better in freedom force third reich and obviously sort of modern real-time strategy games have gotten pretty sophisticated at that so i want to talk a bit about the setting uh, before i go into deeper and some into some of the mechanics uh because you know i've always argued that one way to get people into strategy games into games in general is to find a theme they like that you're better off starting with, you know, a topic they're interested in. Uh, are you a comic book nerd? Oh yeah, um, and I, I I was when I was growing up. I was a huge um, comic fan and uh, comic book fan, and I got out of it for a while. Like I was into like you know from the, um, and I'm dating myself a little here. You know, probably from like '75 or '74 or so to. You know, about ten for about ten years, I read a lot of comic books. Then I sort of went to college and got out of that, and you know, got discovered in, like, girls, girls, and drinking, <laughs> and you know that kind of stuff. But um, and I would occasionally pick up a comic book. But then when the idea, I always liked comics. I always sort of had an affection for them. But then when I just you know we decided to do this, I started getting back into them. You know, I thought, well, I better do some research. You know, and I went to the comic store and you know, cut to what is it, ten years later or eleven years later, and I'm still buying. I'm going now. I'm at this. You know, Julian, you've been in my office. I have a comic book store downstairs, and I every Wednesday I'm still going down there. So, Freedom Force may be not no longer a going concern, but my my very expensive comic book habit still is a going concern. <laughs> So what makes the good setting uh, for an RPG or a strategy game, if we insist on calling it that? Well, I, I mean, one thing is obviously, as you, I think you pointed out, it's just such a, there's such a, a rich mythology. Um, and even without having a license, you know, you could just speak yeah. to everybody knew when you put it at the Freedom Force box, everybody knew what it was about. You didn't have to explain anything. Um, you know, you put it at that box and you said, OK, I get it. I totally get that. Um, and that, that I thought would be a good thing, both from what I was interested in doing and um, 
and I think you know from I thought from a commercial standpoint when I you know as the guy in charge of the business of the company I thought that was an important thing to do I also saw that it was an opportunity because nobody else was there and I, I knew I, I knew that there were people, you know, who who liked video games and who liked comic books. I couldn't imagine there weren't people like me out there who were fans of both those genres. Uh, the, did the, the, did, did you ever consider getting a license, or was um, envisioned from the beginning as yours? At the time, Julian, I don't think I even would have known how to go about it. Um, you know, like I wasn't a particularly sophisticated businessman. Um, and you know, I was sort of barely running this company and barely keeping our head above water. And uh, even if I was to pursue it, I guess I would have thought like it would have been uh, financially impossible, let alone like what it, what phone number do I call? I wouldn't even have I wouldn't have, you know, a clue of how to do it. So we didn't, we didn't go down there and we decided to embrace that. We said, well, we don't have a license. Why don't we make the license people's imagination? And um, that's where the tools came from. That was originally that was not originally part of it. Um, then we realized that one thing that would be very appealing to people is coming up with their own heroes, and that's why you know we we got so heavily into the you know the modability, the hero creation stuff side of it, because we knew people wanted to create their own. You know, as you said, I just got an email from a guy who runs the site that you were mentioning mentioning the site, Freedom Reborn, a couple of days ago, asking me if we could release some tools, um, which I'm looking into to see if we can, like see if they're around or I don't you know I'm I'm not technical enough to know what he's actually asking for, but I'm looking into it. But there's still people making Freedom Force skins out there because it's not because Freedom Force. I mean, I, I love Freedom Force, but it's not because Freedom Force is just such a, a great game. People are still playing it. It's because it's a it's a really good way to express something that people wanted to express. It, it's a vehicle to do that, and um, and that's fun. That people, you know, here it is, 11 years later, 10 years later, people are still, you know, still making that content for this game. So why did you decide to go with the uh, the Silver Edge? You know that was probably a bad idea from a um, from a commercial standpoint. I think that was a function of me being that's what I grew up with. So I just assumed everybody would be as tickled pink by the notions of the Silver Age as I was. Um, and I probably, if I was, you know, if I was, um, if I just, if I wasn't a comic book fan, I probably would have looked at the market and said, well, maybe it should be, you know, at the time we were making Freedom Force, something more current, you know, something more. Less Mutants. Jack Kirby, yeah. Uh, yeah, less Jack Kirby and more Jim Lee. Um, do you want to do you want to explain to our listeners who might not be comic book fans what the Silver Age sure. ethos was, what it evoked? Yeah, the Silver Age was, you know, the you know, we're pretty much starting in 1960 to about ni- approximately 1970, 1975, something like that. And it's what you think of when you think of Spider-Man, the appearance of Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. Um, the Hulk and all and the Avengers and all these characters sort of came around in, in just like a couple of year period, you know, um, with guys like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. All, all these all these characters came. They just they didn't you know they came into existence then. And there was really a it was a maturing of the comic book industry that characters weren't just perfect um, paragons. They had flaws in them. Like you know, Spider Man was sort of this nerdy kid, and the Fantastic Four squat had a family that squabbled with each other. Um, and, you know, and the characters had flaws and they weren't always perfect. And that was a big innovation at the time. And, but they were still, you know, extremely fantastical, um, extremely, they were not dark in any way. They were still quite, um, you know, quite, they were, you know, juvenile, I guess, in a lot of ways, but, it, you know, I think in a really great way. Um, but they, but relative to what came before them, they were, they were quite sophisticated. And I think that, um, you know, I think as a writer, 
I, I had a lot of my, my formative thinking as a writer coming from reading those comics of that period because I grew up, you know, reading, you know, I remember when I, for my birthday, I got these, these collections of like bring um, origins of Marvel heroes and, and son of origins and bring on the bad guys, which are all these sort of like collection of origin stories from all these characters. And they're all, you know, Stan Lee and, and Jack Kirby and John Buscema and uh, John Romita senior. And, um, it, it was, it really formed my thinking about how to write genre stuff. Um, and that, you know, and I think in some ways we're sort of video games are sort of in that period ourselves where we're, we're sort of, we're becoming more sophisticated, but we're still relative to some other media still, you know, relatively juvenile in a lot of but ways. But it's, it's, it's funny you say that because part of the charm of freedom force is the fact that <clears throat> it straddles that line between treating the you know the original subject matter the stuff you didn't have the license for with this simultaneous tongue-in-cheek hilarity and also this kind of reverence and and there's so many i can't think of a moment in either game where you really stepped way too far over one line where it became way too much of an homage and and became a little bit like oh come on can't get over yourself or where it got so campy and so over the top that it became insulting if you really loved that period and i mean it's sort of interesting to hear you talk about that because you're clearly doing more than just creating your own Silver Age comic. You're also playing with the idea and and the the sort of goofiness of that era at the same time. Yeah, well, we, you know, because we have, you know, we we have the sort of the benefit of time to look back at those. You know, when you go back and you read those comics and you read, you know, the origin of Iron Man and you realize, you know, Tony Stark originally was a, you know, a, a weapons manufacturer and the first issue of Iron Man it was you know, which camp they were rooting for in Vietnam was very clear, yeah. um, you know, in, in the in, in the Iron Man origin story. And then, you know, the, the 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 Viet Cong are just atrocious stereotypes in it. And um, but it was the time, you know, it was a time, a certain time in America. And we were basically I think when making the game. We weren't just trying to, re, you know, ape those comics. Exactly. I think we we're also trying to have a little fun commentary about the period of time where they came out and the kind of optimism that. You know, the, the, the kind of the kind of I, I guess, you know, to some I mean, you're talking about pre-Vietnam, pre-Watergate. You're really talking about that last period when it was really everybody or most people were so pretty optimistic and pretty trusting of, you know, what was told to them, what the media told them, what the government told them. And um, because really, I think the reason heroes evolved over time is not because hero the media evolved. It's our views of, you know, our views of authority evolved over time. And, um, and, you know, so just trusting a, a, a figure, you know, um, you know, a, a, an authority figure like a superhero becomes much more complicated. And that's why you see Marvel, you know, things like if you've been following Marvel in the last few years, you know, they did this whole story, a uh, whole me- macro story called Civil War, where right. the government tried to, I don't know if all you guys are comic readers, but the government tries to register superheroes to work for the government. And if you can't be a superhero unless you work for the government... And basically, they split the Marvel heroes down the middle, and like Iron Man leads one side, and 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 um, Captain America leads the other side, and they're really in brutal, deadly opposition to each other over this ideological issue. And that's not a story. That's a story you can only have now. Like that's not a story right. you could have had back then. Right. It would have made, it made sense. no sense in 1955. Right. Yep. That's a post Watergate comic book story. <laughs> <laughs> post 9-11 post Watergate comic book story but that's cool I mean they evolved so it was fun to be able to sort of comment on a period you know in a way without 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 you know from from the perspective of a media that was present in that period and we really just did it by 
presenting things storylines and structures very almost completely at face value from what they were back then. Now, you said that you thought that maybe starting with the Soviet was a mistake, that you know maybe you should have done something a little bit more current, a little bit more updated. But then for the sequel, you back to the, you go to the golden age. You don't go forward in time. I never said I learned from my mistakes, Troy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just look the sequel. You know, I was just like, well, we originally planned to go into the Bronze Age, you know, which is like which is the seventies, you know, and seventies um, and early eighties. And then I was just like, nah, I like Nazis. I, I, I want to make a I want to make a Nazi half man half ape and put him in a game. <laughs> and, so, and that's the joy. As of it. And so as you long. did. What is you it about so you? And, what is it about you and evil monkeys? That's like a theme. <laughs> you know, I, I just like monkeys. What can I say? And um, you know, when when you when you have an opportunity to make a game with a killerilla in it, you make a game with a killerilla in it. <laughs> and, and you know, and and I, I think we paid a price for it. Fine, I mean, because John, we John and I funded that ourselves, second game, and you know, we we took kind of a bath on it. But um, we just made exactly the game we wanted to make, and I'm, I'm happy we did. Looking back on it, but um, it wasn't a big success for us. Do you think with the way you'd set up sort of the Freedom Force universe in the first game, though? Do do you think you do you think those characters could have made the transition to the Bronze Age or a later date in, in comic history? Because well, I look the at story... them, and they... go ahead, Rob. Well, I look at them and they, and they seem sort of very much in touch with that time and place. And there's a generational divide between them and us, a a worldview shift. And I have a hard time seeing those characters making that jump. Well, I think that's exactly what would be fun about it. That's like you just sort of drama is doing, you know, putting people in exactly the situations you described. Um, You know, the joy of, you know, if they do the Captain America movie right, and I don't think they're doing the first one this way. It's, you know, Captain America is a fish out of water story, right? It's a guy who was in the 40s who wakes up today, um, you know, whose all his values come from a certain period of time. And I think to um, and they've done that, you know, reasonably, you know, they've walked a very strange line in the comics because, you know, obviously these characters are would all be in their 70s or 80s now, realistically. But they, you know, they're all, you know, in their 20s and 30s. And they've walked this really interesting line of playing with time in comics, you know, because they they sort of acknowledge a passage of time, but they also don't. But I think that um, that's what Civil War was about. You know, when you look at guys like, um, you know, like Captain America being on one side of Civil War. And in fact, there's a period that Captain America in the comics went through, what he was called Nomad, where he basically abandoned being Captain America because he thought the co- he he couldn't he wasn't happy with where the country was going, and he wasn't happy being an icon, a representation of that country. And I think that stuff's all really interesting um, to play with, and it would have been a very different game. You couldn't maintain that kind of tonality. You would have had to use a different time period to tell a different story. Why do you think there's so few? good comic book games prior to I, I and, and I'm, I'm caveating that by saying prior to say the last few years because we have had a string of pretty exceptional comic book games things like Bat- batman arkham asylum obviously i i sort of see as a breakout game in the comic book genre um but but prior to that man it's slim pickings whether you're talking board games or video games or anything uh, you know, even in role playing games, I mean, certainly there are plenty of people who got who played champions when I was in college. But but yep. it's pretty it's pretty thin for how powerful cultural force comics have been in the United States. Uh, there there, um, there are a few questions I know absolutely know the answer to that. I'm positive I know the answer to and I'm positive I know the answer to this one. Oh, good. Wait, so uh, wait, this, wait, this wait, is, I got a pen. I got to get a pen. <laughs> sure. 
<laughs> the reason you mentioned Arkham Asylum and the reason it works is because it tells a story about Batman and the Joker. And it's involved telling a story. Comic books are stories at the end of the day. They are – they have to have a narrative. They have to have something a, – a, a soap opera, a, you know, a, a super – a super – a, you know, their soap operas on, on um, you know, with high octane fuel of, of these superpowers. And most games don't get that. I mean, the reason, I mean, I, I enjoy the Raven games, you know, the, the Marvel Ultimate Alliance games are fun, but they don't, they don't work as great comic book stories. And therefore, they're lacking something, which is a shame because you have all these incredible characters um, and they're not able to sort of tell the, you know, the story that, that, that a comic book can tell. Where, where Arkham Asylum is a really nice little narrative. First of all, you know, they, they do very smart things. They say, um, they say, okay, let's take a very limited environment and really simulate it well, you know, which is Arkham. And, you know, and we're really going to have put all – and why are all these cool characters there? Well, they're all in prison there. And why is Batman stuck there? Well, here's why. And why can't he get any help? And here's why. And they really limit the, the, the set and they make it feel very believable and very real and like a real place. And they, the whole game is devoted to – that mythology and really ex- um, letting you, you know, explore that mythology. And that's why games, I think like a lot of the MMO superhero games are not satisfying because they don't tell a story. And it's not, the story is not just aliens land and you punch them. The story has to be about the characters and about what they're going through. It's soap opera. Well, that's a good answer. So yeah, I, it's the only thing I've ever absolutely known in my life. <laughs> I can only speak with certainty certainty about this one topic. Do you think the powers create a problem for creating a game around them? Um, do you think like that designers have a have a tendency to get lost in trying to figure out how you're going to create gameplay scenarios with you know this character's special power and this one's particular powers and sort of lose sight of the fact that ultimately these are these are characters in a story no but but isn't that every game i mean in gears of war you have superpowers right you have these ridiculous guns and you can do these ridiculous physical feats Um, yeah but you've also got even it's perfectly tailored to a character who basically runs from cover to cover and shoots the shit out of stuff Um, right but you you can tailor your game to whatever i mean look at look at arkham asylum you know you it was perfectly tailored to the things batman can do um you know and if you made a good game you know if you made a good um you know, Iron Man game, you could do the same thing. Like, but we'll be missing from, you know, what's missing, I think, from from a lot of these games, you know, that aren't Arkham Asylum, you know, because, I mean, is, is the, the ability to tell a good story around these things. I mean, there's very few games where you're not playing some kind of, I mean, a small-ass superhero. Right, but, but, but part of what makes superhero comic books so so enticing and and this is i would actually say this is what makes doctor who so enticing too because i think he's more of a science fiction superhero than a science fiction character is because there's this always the sense of you don't actually know how the rules work right i mean part of what's exciting about reading a superhero comic book is you can get to the end and there can be these sort of almost ridiculous discoveries like, oh, this character actually isn't dead because, right? I mean, all of these soap opera, over-the-top, melodramatic, quasi-cliffhangers and endings where the rules change based on what you thought you knew before, right? Just like Doctor Who, right? Deus Ex Machina, every episode. Uh, That seems to me to be a nearly insurmountable game challenge, right? But isn't that, I mean, is that any different from Metal Gear Solid? 
you know, or, 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 or any of these sort of like, like, um, you know, it's really a soap opera thing you're talking about, not a superhero thing that these characters get in these ridiculous situations and, you know, and they're, they get in and they get it out of them in ridiculous, in ridiculous ways. I think what makes superheroes interesting, the best superheroes is, is I think the fact that they're underdogs usually, and that, you know, you, you fall, I mean, I always look at, you know, if you watch, um, you know, um, you know, the X-Men are hated, you know, in the comics, what makes the X-Men powerful is they're, is they're despised by society. What makes Spider-Man powerful is that he's kind of a loser. Um, and, that's well, and, what... and, and if you look at sort of more recent uh, popular comics that sort of bridge a sort of a culture gap, you look at things like Kick-Ass or you look at, uh, you know, Scott Pilgrim, right? Those are those are literally underdogs because they're sort of non-superheroes and superhero worlds in a sense. Yep. Yeah. And, and you have these characters who choose to do these incredible things. When sort of everything in the world, you know, the most powerful superhero movie story is probably, I think, Spider-Man 2. When remember that part where he, um, you know, he, Mary Jane's with the Ash is with jo- J. Jonah Jameson's son and he's unemployed and all these things are telling him, don't be Spider-Man. And because he decides to be Spider-Man, he's a hero, not because he can climb walls. It's because of his character. And, you know, those are the those are the things that I think that make us that make a superhero story different, not the not the powers. I think almost all video games have powers, you know, superpowers. I think it's really about this. As I said, the narrative context for why you're doing those things, um, because really think about it, you know, to be a superhero, you got to get up in the morning and it's hard enough to get through life. Can you imagine putting on tights and, you know, going out and fighting crime at the same time? <laughs> I, I assume that's what you did on your average Friday night, Ken. That's 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 pretty much. So now that we've had our our comic uh dissertation committee here <laughs> let's uh awesome. kind of move the conversation uh back towards games uh uh ken you've designed you've worked on a lot of games a lot of different genres the great things about freedom force is you know we can actually talk about what kind of game is it and where does it fit um you say you were inspired by Baldur's gate which has a, one of the great tactical rpg uh combat systems you know it is plausible and Baldur's Gate 2, you had this great power, counterpower yep. thing in magic, which was amazing. Um, what lessons did you bring from other games besides Baldur's Gate to Freedom Force? And alternatively, what did Freedom Force teach you about game design in other genres you've worked on? Apart from story, which you are, I mean, uh, Irrational does some of the best story based games um, I've ever played. So. Oh, I, I, honestly, I, I, I had. I had very little to do with the game design in Freedom Force. I, you know, I pretty much did the story and the setting. And I, you know, Rob Waters and I here in Boston really sort of did the story. And I wrote the, you know, the dialogue. And Rob, I worked with Rob, drew all, conceived visually all the characters. And John Che and his team in Australia really did the gameplay. So I think that it's hard for me to talk about a lot of lessons I, t- I took away from making it because I wasn't. You, right. you, you really take away lessons when you're like building stuff and testing it and realizing that you're, you know, oh, that was a terrible idea. I just got to play it as a fan, you know, like I got to, I got to play the levels and then, and then feedback as from a story standpoint right. and okay. what I want to start. And those guys were really terrific about basically taking what I gave them story-wise and, and you know, and, and making the world feel right and, and you know, and, and doing all that stuff. So I didn't take away a lot. Um, I didn't take away well, a lot. How, games well, then how does a story become a game? Um, boy, that's a really interesting question. Um, Freedom Force because there's because there's because there is a difference. I mean, we have a lot of you mentioned Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid earlier. I mean, it's a long interactive movie, and for to a lot of people, it really does have a whole lot of interesting game in it. Well, I you know Freedom Force is interesting because it, basically my job is to say how do I take this gameplay and enhance it with story, 
And I, you know, I did some very simple things. Like I made sure that um, one thing I think that happens in 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 a lot of strategy games, you know, with have that don't have, um, you know, that I don't have great. St- strategy games end with 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 release of tension the strategy game missions end with a release of tension comic book comic books and when issues end with a a build of tension you always have that last panel mm-hmm. right which is what's what's drawing you to the next um what's drawing you to the next episode what's the next issue why are you going to buy the next issue now video games don't have that problem we don't have to make people buy the next issue and i think therefore we often re- we didn't have we don't have that sort of financial imperative to make make missions end with increase of tension one thing i wanted to do right away and if you look at all the freedom force missions unless i'm forgetting some we really tried to make sure that every mission ended with a problem an introduction of a problem that we'd always have a a reason like okay well we solved this problem oh no but something worse just happened and right. that I think it helped it helped the game be a good game because it gave you a reason to come back, um, and that we took right out of comic books. Uh, that's a big problem with strategy game campaigns. I mean, you're playing Age of Empires now and Age of Empires three, and when you go into uh, the story based campaigns, there they're really kind of typical. I mean, it's the usual: here's a mission, you finish it, and then what? Yeah, um, and you and you've also you you do spend all this work building up all this stuff, yep. and then you're like you get knocked back to start over again, you know, the next mission. And I never found that particularly satisfying. And Freedom Force doesn't have the well, it has fewer of those problems because you're 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 not you're just you destroy buildings, you don't build bases, you destroy things during the missions. Um, you're not accomplishing things, you know, in the same way, and so you don't feel like, damn, they just took away all my stuff. Um, and you and you're not sort of resolving. You're not completely resolving tension. Um, and you, it's a fine line. You want to make people feel like they have a pro, they have progress. And, and look, TV shows and comics have the same problem. You know, the, the, you want to feel like they're resolving something, but as soon as you solve that one thing, something else comes back to take its but, place. But there's an interesting game design sort of <clears throat> choice that happens in. And this is certainly not just in Freedom Force. I mean, I think Metal Gear Solid is actually sort of an interesting counterexample there, too, where the decisions you're making inside missions actually feel very micro, right? And and just just take, you know, playing Snake, right? I mean, you're you're making very small tactical decisions about whether you take this path or that path or go stealthy and hide underneath the barrel or whether you shoot everybody you see. But ultimately, you're getting from point A to point B. Um, and, and it's just sort of a question of how, and you're resolving a fairly small piece of plot most of the time, but then you sort of get exposed to a big piece of plot, which is kind of outside of your control. And it's a little bit of wash, rinse, repeat. And, and Freedom Force sort of feels like that too. I mean, so much of the experience of playing the game is very much in the, well, am I going to make this character fly or not? Am I going to have this character put up a defensive spell for the group, or am I going to have him use his big missile attack? I mean, it's very, very sort of almost D&D micromanagement of the combat tactics. Um, and yet the end results are these sort of big campaign stopper moments. I mean, it's just sort of an interesting thing strategy games deal with. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I think that's a, you know, we had... You know, when you're making a, a you know rise of nations or an age of empires mission it, it's there's the people don't expect the kind of story beats that you do out of a comic and so just the fact you sure. have a comic book already you already have people are you know they'll give you permission as an audience to sort of throw crazy crap at them at the end of a mission and give them a real reason to come back where you know there's only even if you're a fan of history you know and i'm a huge fan of history you know if you follow the campaign of alexander the great 
it, it's it, it, it well first of all they tend to do the storytelling quite often in a very you know this is history kind of method which is always a challenge for engaging people you know you know this is history and it's very serious and people back then spoke in complete sentences and never used contractions and um that gets a little dull and you know we sort of had permission from the beginning to just come up with crazy shit and constantly um you know and and you know to be a soap opera and that's what we were you know it's a, it's a soap opera and that's because the the form we were working in crickets 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 well i have, wow. I have one question about setting and just to go back to you know what that that line you were talking about earlier julian where it doesn't become too knowing and winking and ironic but it also doesn't become a cloying homage but one of the things i'm really curious about is how do you how do you prevent how do you prevent uh, taking your your setting, another era, another place, and just turning it into something um, that's really just overtly about us, about the way we live now, and basically just transplanting everything, you know, our world into another, and letting that sort of take over. Um, well, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure about what you mean, Rob. You're saying how how do you if you're gonna make a modern? Are you are you are you are you still talking about making a modern version? No, he's asking well, if, if you're, when you're making like a game set in a specific historical setting. Yes. And you could say, how do you avoid transplanting your own modern ideas, our own modern conceptions of what right and wrong is, of uh, the way plots are supposed to play out? How do you keep yourself in that historical mindset? Yeah, I, mean, I think the, that's what he's asking, right? You know, yeah, that, yeah, that's tough. You know, I was watching, um, I was watching Gettysburg, and I think Rob, you and I were talking about this mm-hmm. when I had dinner the other night. Um, I was watching Gettysburg. Uh, yeah, that movie, which I think is actually a great, you know, there's very few movies that sort of, um, that are, what do you call procedurals about war, you know, yeah. that, that really describe in detail how war is fought. And Gettysburg's both this great movie on one hand, because it really teaches you about the battle. And, you know, if you want to know, you know, you know, what happened on Little Round Top, that's, um, that's the go-to movie. Um, and the problem with it, though, is you know, it's the phony beard problem. It has these phony beards and these phony emotions and these phony sort of like everybody's so damn noble and so damn serious. And so, well, they're serious, of course, but they're also, you know, nobody's farting or, you know, picking their nose, <laughs> you know, Every, everything's, everything's so portentous. And, um, and I think that's, that's important, but I think it's also, it, it does a disservice to the time because it separates them from us. And I think that's you know, and that's it. Um, it, 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 I think that's what great things of if you watch a movie, if you watch a TV show like Deadwood. Um, mm-hmm. if you, have you guys seen that show? Yeah, mm-hmm. love it. You know, it, yeah. it, it, treat, it teaches about a period of history where, and I think you know they went very far on the whole like you know the cow the characters cursed and the drinking and the whoring. Because without that, you don't you, you don't understand that people back then were, were really not that different than people like us. Um, and except they all spoke in Shakespearean monologue, just like Tom Chick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they were they they certainly had a you know a um, no they had a Mametian a David Mametian eloquence to them, but yeah. they but they but they weren't you know the but they weren't you know they the, you know they, they they weren't shitting Purina. Um, they were you know they were really living their lives, and I think that was really important. And I think that's 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 a problem with a lot of a lot of the way history is presented is it is, it turns people into 
into into into statues and i and, think and, i think strategy games are probably the worst defenders in that because you're already dealing with a layer of abstraction right individuals yep. in yep. strategy games are quite often just leaders right they're just a you know they're just like a driver's license picture and description of like oh you know this is picket this is what he did this is why he was an idiot you try to be better right i mean that's it that's all you get yep Yep, and 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 you know, and I think it does a disservice because I think, it's, frankly, to people who aren't history nerds, it's off-putting, because good storytelling is good storytelling, and if you read somebody who really knows how to write history, um, you know, you you understand, you know, that that you, that it's one, it's 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 you know, it's our it's our it's our feet, it's the feet of clay that makes people interesting, um, you know, it's 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 the flaws of these guys because these guys are, you know, you, you know, Robert E. Lee is an obviously an extraordinary figure, but you know. He's also tr- tends to be treated in this in this fashion where he's you know sort of treated like a mini god, mm-hmm. and you know he he put his pants on two legs at a time like the rest of us. And I think with um that it's interesting if you look at the, the history of superheroes to sort of sorry to, to try to move a, I'm trying to move myself back on topic here a little bit is heroes have sort of done the same thing. Like if you looked at you know you know Superman is the, the writers of Superman are constantly in a struggle to show how Superman puts his pants one leg on one leg at a time. Because that's what he becomes so uninteresting. The reason Batman's been a much more, I think, successful character over time is because Batman's a guy with flaws and a guy with problems. And in fact, you know, they really experimented with making him almost, you know, sociopathic well, at times. And look at and look at Iron Man. I mean, Iron Man is the the like quintessential superhero with flaws. You know, back from the original comic books. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it took it took a while. I mean, I remember when I was around, you know, when I was around ten years old. I bought an issue of Iron Man where he was on the cover with a bottle of booze and, you know, and, and like five days, five o'clock shadow. And it's a demon in a bottle. And I was 10 years old. I didn't quite understand what it meant, but he was a drunk. And they and that's something they kept with him. And that made him a much more interesting character. And that's um, why that and that's why the movies, I think, have been so successful as well, because that it makes it an interesting character. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why Superman, they continue to struggle with Superman because he just sort of by design doesn't have those flaws. Hmm. Interesting. So, have you considered working on another strategy game? Um, are you making one now? You're <laughs> <laughs> um, here first, ladies. It's gentlemen. announcement time. Yeah. I'm considering having people having thought I was working on one for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> um uh, you know, you know, I, I'm. It's weird because as a game maker and as a game player, I mean, I play. Um, I play, you know, I primarily, boy, what do I, you know, I play a lot of strategy games. I mean, I play a lot of, it's weird because you wouldn't think knowing the games I play, the games I primarily play at home, you know, I'm playing, I played Empire Total War and I played all the follow-ups to that, you know, their problems aside, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still a big fan. This weekend I was playing the Ruse, um, multiplayer beta, mm-hmm. um, I play, you know, I love strategy RPGs. I absolutely love those games. Um, I love Majesty. I love Heroes of Might and Magic. Um, I'm really probably, if I had one genre I play more than anything, it's probably strategy or RPGs, you know, strategy RPGs. And that's why Baldur's Gate was such a revelation to me because sort of, you know, it was the, it was the, uh, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup of games for me because it brought those two together. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of what I work on, I, you know, I think where I have, I think my strength tends to be in story um, as as a as a developer, and that's even the strategy. You know, as Freedom Force is a strategy game, it's it's pretty it's pretty arch from a from a you know compared to most strategy games as a as a as a piece of narrative. 
and it was pretty out there as a piece of narrative. Like, I don't think I can make a, you know, an Age of Empires game. I'm not sure I would know what to do with that. Um, though, you know, I like playing those games. I love, play, you know, I live and really enjoy playing those games. I think I would have to really sit back and if I was to make a game like that and be, and say, what could I bring to this, you know, right. as a writer that would make this different and make this interesting? Because Freedom Force, I, I try to leverage the writing part, the thing I did well, to make a better strategy game. Um, I'm not sure how I would do that with like with a with a like a historical strategy game. I mean, what is the state of stra- of stories and strategy games? I mean, we're big on the. I mean, I'm big on emergent narrative. Strategy games are what the stories we tell ourselves, instead of the ones that are imposed from an author. Yeah, but you're yeah, a you're, hip- an author. you're a hippie. Nah, I <laughs> no. love a good story, but that's, <laughs> to me, it, that's very different than as a, uh, as sorry, go ahead. As an, from, it's not an authorial voice, which is what you one of the strengths that you bring to your games is the authorial voice. Is there a place in strategy game where the emergent narrative and the authorial voice can actually meet? Is there a place for that, or are they just too divergent? No, look, as a gamer, I'm with you, Troy. Like, you know, my favorite strategy games are XCOM and Rise of Nations. You know, the the risk the risk mode in Rise of Nations, where you play on that on that meta on that large macro map. And then you play out those battles. I love, love, love. That's why Rise of Nations is my favorite RTS. Um, and I'm not, I, I, and I'm not a fan of, of of it generally in strategy games. I can only, but you know, I'm not, I'm not a, the game developer. I am is not the same as the game player. I am. Right. So what I enjoy. So I don't know if I have brilliant things to bring to that side of the world. Like I don't know if I have if I have Brian Reynolds's talent for you know and his team's talent for making. A really innovative, make-your-own narrative kind of thing. You know, Civilization I love because it's again, like you said, it's a make-your-own narrative kind of thing. The narratives I tend to make, the things I, at least you know I have some ability in, is the is a specific narrative, and I'd have to step back from it and and sort of take off my specific, let's call it, you know, specific and emergent narrative hats. I'd have to take off my specific narrative hat and really think about how to make an emergent narrative that wasn't just, oh, I want to make one almost as good as one of these guys, but something that I hope, you know, if I'm going to make a game, I'm going to ask people to pay, you know, 60 bucks, 50, 60 bucks for it. I'd want to be able to at least think I can make something that would be, you know, compete with those guys. Otherwise, I'd be sort of loath to do it. So before we before we sign off, Ken, I, I sort of ask want to ask you one question because you obviously spend a fair amount of your time thinking about, hmm, I wonder if I could make a game out of that. Since you actually go and make games out of crap, are there any other genres that you look at and say, I'd love to make a game out of that? Like you looked at Silver Age comic books and said, I'd love to make a game out of that. You know, there's a game that there's a, a game type that I love that is very few and far between. And it's it, it, if you look at Carriers at War and you look at Pacific Air War, remember that game? Oh, yeah. And you look at, um, what was the games that just came out? Battle Stations Pacific and Battle Stations Midway? Mm-hmm. There is something about the, the cat, and, and Harpoon was also a game along these lines, of the cat and mouse nature. And you guys were discussing Harpoon last week. Um, that, that cat and mouse nature. There's incredible narrative tension to the cat and mouse story that those games have. And... I would love to figure out a way to make to take that cat and mouse um, notion and and make it in a game. And I think it's a great as you, you know, sure you're talking about meta narrative. Yeah. That's a great meta narrative. I mean, what happened at Midway, independent of any dialogue, you know, when they caught the planes on the deck, um, when the Americans caught the planes of uh, the Japanese planes rearming on the deck. I mean, that's like the most dramatic thing of all time. And it's and it wasn't like you need characters to say anything. It was just incredibly dramatic that whole battle. Because it, it was hinging upon these moments, and very few battles, uh, you know, traditional battles 
um, hinge upon these like seconds, you know, the or the or one lucky bomb hit. Um, they're incredibly dramatic, and also they never happens. They happened in one war basically, and never happened again. Um, you know, even though Harpoon simulates what would have happened, those those carrier battles never actually happen. I think there's so much drama there, and I I, I don't know how you'd actually make that into a great game because honestly. It, it, people have real trouble pulling it off and catching that that sense of, of um, catching that drama, but it's uh, pretty exciting if you get it right. Hmm. So that's I Ken's next try. game is the uh, Carrier Deck of Midway. You heard it right after right. he finishes up XCOM. Well, Ken, thank you for joining us. Uh, since you're a huge strategy gamer, we hope we can have you on sometime. Just talk about strategy games in general. You're a great. I love kids. to. I love to. Uh, without making you talk about work or whatever else you're working on. I'm sure you'll let us know eventually. Uh, reminding listeners that the uh, Flash of Steel Three Moves Ahead uh, meetup is going to be scheduled for August the 14th. That's a Saturday. I'm looking at the late afternoon and early evening. Um, there will be eventually be a post on Flash of Steel giving all the details, including time and location and how you can get there. It will be in downtown D.C., Anybody who was in the area uh, that weekend is invited to join us. Uh, Julian and Rob, do we have a topic for next week? Oh, God, you're not going to put us on the spot oh, like that, Oh, come on. You? No, we don't. Of course, you don't have a topic for next week. We won't have a topic for next week till Sunday. Uh, say goodnight, everyone. Goodnight, everyone. Good night. Good night.